for people like us. And by people like us, I mean perfect, stable, normal folk. Right? <laughs> I mean people who know they need salvation. People who are broken. People who stumble. People who fail. People who know they need a way out. People who need stability and meaning for their souls. God has done some incredible things for people like us. God saved me. God saved me. We sang this morning, I went down to the river and I came up clean. (laughs) I was reminded earlier this week of another old song of the church on the line. He looked beyond my fault and saw my need. He looked beyond what was broken in me. What he saw is what I needed. And he saved me. God provides the way for us to be in relationship with him. To find peace and meaning for our lives. To find security and love and the power of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God saved me. And God has given us his word. It is his communication to us about who he is and what he is up to. God has given us his word. You see, guys, God desires that we know him. So he talks to us. He communicates to us through his word filled with the breath of His Holy Spirit. And as we think of salvation and the Word of God in the context of spiritual warfare and the armor of God, let's remind ourselves of this passage of Scripture. James chapter 4, verse 7 says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The enemy of our souls is real. We've been talking about this for a few weeks now. And he really does need to be resisted. And there's a plan for that. And that's what we've been spending time with. This is what the armor of God is about. This is why we talk about spiritual warfare and what it means. So this morning we put on two more pieces of armor. The helmet of salvation. What is salvation? What do I mean by that? What does scripture mean by that? Why do I even need God's gift of salvation? Guys, salvation is the gift that bridges the unbridgeable gap. And it not only saves my soul, it becomes my joy and it becomes my strength. And it becomes my sight. Again, as that passage says, my faith becomes sight. I begin to see Christ and Christ leads me to a vision of the Father. The helmet of salvation. And then the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This final piece of armor is the Word of God itself. Not just a text, not just another book, but something that is full of the living breath of the Holy Spirit. It is something that communicates and continually communicates to the people of God the will and the might and the power and the goodness and the holiness and the righteousness of our Heavenly Father. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So let's read in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 13. We'll make our way to verse 17 this morning. I'm going to read this whole chunk of Scripture to cover over the fact that we're only going through one verse today. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, 
in all circumstances. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So we take up this morning the helmet of salvation. One of the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith is salvation. Why we need it and how we get it. What is broken inside of us that requires outside help and what that outside help looks like. What the problem is and what the solution is. Guys, listen, salvation is not only a basic part of the human condition, it is a central piece of the biblical story. Now, we use the word salvation. Christians use the word salvation. Other religions and other religious types use the word salvation. We use the word salvation, but let me, let me tell you this. Everybody uses the concept salvation. Salvation is as universal as the human experience. It's not just the Christian story that tells the need and the solution that is salvation. Every single worldview, every single religion, every single version of atheism, every political ideology, every educational ideology has a doctrine of salvation. Make no mistake about that. So we use the word Every human being uses the concept. So when we talk about the biblical notion of salvation, here's part of what we're talking about. There are four words that we can use to describe the arc of the entire biblical story. And sometimes we use these four words to talk about everything from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, and it contains this story of salvation and what it means. The four words are this, creation, fall, redemption, and glorification. These are four easy words to remember. If you need to remember what the story of the Bible is about, if someone else wants to know what the story of the Bible is all about, creation, fall, redemption, and glorification. And here's what we mean by that. Listen to how this story goes. God created all things, including us, to be in relationship with Him. We sinned and fell away from what we were created for. But because of God's great love, His power and mercy toward us, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live among us, die for our sins, and rise from the dead so that we might have life. And Jesus ascended into heaven, promising to come back again and take us to be with him for all of eternity. That's a pretty good story, right? Here's a good point for you guys to say amen. amen. Creation, fall, redemption, and then glorification. Paul says a little bit later on in the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober or clear-minded, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope, the hope of salvation. 
Guys, listen, if the story of salvation is universal to the human condition, part of what that entails is that we're trying to fix what we think has gone wrong. We're looking for the thing that will fulfill our hope for us. And the human heart so desperately wants to fix what is wrong. Guys, the salvation story is very simple. What is wrong and how do we fix it? And I don't just mean what's wrong with my car and how do I get that fixed. We mean what is wrong with everything. What is wrong with the human condition and what fixes that. If you think that income inequality is what is wrong with the human condition. In our culture today, you believe that socialism is salvation. You see how this works? What's wrong and how do I fix it? Paul says, there is only hope. The only hope we have is in the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. And we put on this helmet of the hope of our salvation. So salvation is the story of redemption. Let's talk about this for a moment or two. Salvation is the story of redemption. It is the story of a loving God who created human beings to be in perfect and absolute and eternal intimate relationship with him. But human beings decided that they didn't want that. They blew it so bad that he had to come and fix the problem himself. This is what God created us for. This is what we did with it in our sin. And then this is what God does with our sin. As he comes himself and he provides the solution for our sin. This passage of scripture that uh, we pay attention to every Advent season, every Christmas season. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. The angel is talking to Joseph about Mary and the child that she's going to give birth to. And she says this about this child. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Notice how the agency works in that passage. He will save us from our sin. I'm a sinner in need of salvation. I don't have the power to fix what needs to be fixed. Someone else has to do it. This just floored me this week as I just sat here and looked at this verse of Scripture. He doesn't ask me to fix what's wrong with me. He comes and He provides the solution for what's wrong with me, and it is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He will save His people from their sin. We talk about sometimes being lost in our sin And over the years, that language as a pastor in conversation both with Christians and non-Christians, that language of being lost in our sin often comes off as really interesting people. See, people sometimes are, I'm not lost. You know, it's offensive to me. Why would you say that I'm broken like this or lost like this? It's off-putting. People sometimes, even Christians sometimes, object to the language of being lost in my sin or desperate for the work of Jesus Christ. But it really doesn't matter whether or not someone is actually offended by this language. It just doesn't matter. If a drowning man is offended by learning that he is drowning, that doesn't mean he doesn't need to be saved. Right? It doesn't matter if you're offended by learning the objective truth that you are lost in your sin. What matters is, do you know who fixes that for you? Do you know how this gets solved? Do you know who Jesus 
is. Salvation is a story of redemption, the buying back of what was lost and brought back to God the way that He designed it to be. Later on in the book of Titus, as Paul writes to this young pastor in Titus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, Paul says this, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. That group of people that Pastor Ryan read from this morning in the book of Revelation, that's this group of people. That's this group of people. God redeems us from our lawlessness so that He can purify for Himself a group of people who can stand in His presence forever and ever. This is part of the glory and almost unfathomable goodness of salvation that now with Jesus Christ, because of what He has offered, by grace we are saved through faith, not of our own works. Guys, because of this, we can now walk with Jesus Christ and begin to see Him. And He is the one who leads us to the point when someday we will see the Heavenly Father just as Jesus sees the Heavenly Father. We actually get to taste the glory of heaven now in salvation. And it creates in us a hunger for that eternity when we will see him face to face. Salvation is the story of redemption. And then this word kept striking me the more I spent time with it this week. You may not always think about salvation in these terms, but Scripture does. Salvation is safety. Salvation is safety. Actually, folks, the the simplest concept of the word salvation is to be saved from my enemies. This is the way the word is used often inside of the Old Testament. You go to the Psalms and you read the Psalms that David writes. And he writes a lot of these Psalms while he is in the wilderness fleeing from his enemies. Actual flesh and blood people with spears and arrows and armies who actually want to physically kill him. And he prays to God in these Psalms that he would be David's salvation. And as you read that, you feel two things happening at once. There really is trouble in this world that I need saving from. But I know that there are deeper, more powerful things at work that I need saving from that I can't fix. And I need the God who is my absolute and complete salvation. The Lord is my salvation. God is the Lord of our salvation. He is the only one who can save us. We have enemies that can overwhelm us. We have a God who has already overwhelmed all our enemies. He is our salvation. We read this passage during worship before we rolled into that thought that our God is such an awesome God. From Psalm 18, verse 2, here's part of what we read together. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take Refuge, He is my safety, my shield, the horn or the strength of my salvation, my stronghold. Your soul is safe with God. The cross 
is what secures our salvation. Jesus is the one who secures our salvation. And if you have put your trust in him, if you have put your faith in him, your soul is safe with your God. So we put on the helmet that is the hope of our salvation. And we keep asking this question through this passage of Scripture. All of these things that we've been talking about, remember, when we talk about spiritual warfare in this passage of Scripture, what it is is about saturating ourselves in the presence and character of Jesus Christ. So we're making sure we understand what this means, what salvation is, what Christ has done for us. And then we ask this question as well. Why is this spiritual warfare? Why is this spiritual warfare? It is because our enemy wants us to believe that anything or anyone else can be our salvation. Our enemy wants us to believe that anything, anything or anyone else can be our salvation. So remember, the doctrine of salvation is simple and it is universal in the human condition. What is wrong and how does it get fixed? So part of the cultural narrative is this. Part of what gets taught to us, part of what we imbibe through our media are things like this, either explicitly or implicitly, guys. If there is nothing wrong with me, then what needs to be fixed in this world is other people. Okay? There's nothing wrong with me. It's you. <laughs> it's not me. It's you. There's nothing wrong with me. What needs to be fixed is other people. What needs to be fixed is other systems that just don't do things the right way. What needs to be fixed, and more and more, guys, we're watching this happen in our culture because we get the doctrine of salvation wrong. What needs to be fixed is people who think differently than I do. People who vote differently than I do. And if I can silence them, if I can deplatform them, if I can shame them, if I can get them to stop talking, if I can get them to stop thinking ways differently than I do, then I think I've got everything solved and fixed. Why is censorship on the rise in our culture? Because we've got salvation completely wrong. If what is wrong is the way other people think, then how it gets fixed is the wrong path, right? And we often get this in the, the doctrine of self-esteem. There's nothing wrong with me and doggone it, people like me. It's got to be you. We see it more and more in the doctrine of victimology. So if there is something wrong with you, it's probably somebody else's fault. Or we might be able to fix it with maybe just a couple of prescriptions and a little bit of political manipulation. One of the great prolific, prolific Christian authors about 100, 120 years ago, G.K. Chesterton, um, the, there's a legendary story about him, and it's, you know, if you know G.K. Chesterton, it's, it's got to be true. He, once at, he was once asked to submit an essay to a newspaper. They had a bunch of people, a bunch of important people, answering a single question. They were going to publish all of their articles. The question was this, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, who wrote voluminously, sent back a two-word reply, I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. This is the beginning of the doctrine of Christian salvation. Guys, when we get the problem wrong, we get the solution wrong. We don't like hearing that I am the problem or that I am lost or that I need salvation. So we have this 
strong internal motivation to agree with every other story of salvation out there. Our enemy knows that if he can convince us of every other story or any other story of salvation, he can separate you from your Savior both now and for eternity. But there is a solution, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he freely gives life to anyone, to whosoever will. Maybe the only thing we're going to miss in the NFL season this year is the guy who holds up John 3.16 behind the goalposts this year. Whosoever will. In the end, we all seek salvation. But from what? And by whom? The answers to these questions are in the final piece of this list. And take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is the answer to those questions. This is the guide to our lives. So let's talk about this, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the Word of, the God, the word of God, guys, is the standard that we use to answer these kinds of questions, to figure out what's going on and how God solves it for us. It is our clearest insight into the mind and the might of God. So when Paul speaks of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, he is primarily speaking of the Word of God. Now we know that the Holy Spirit sometimes does speak to us, and it is divinely inspired and guided, and it will always line up with the Word of God. So guys, bottom line, when we're talking about this issue, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, we're talking about the Bibles that we're holding in our laps this morning. We're talking about the Word of God that's been preserved for us. The Bible breathed by God's Spirit and given to every one of us to get to know God. Now the Bible is a huge book. I don't know if you've noticed, but this is small print. <laughs> and there's a lot of pages inside of this book. It's written in several languages and multiple literary styles across several cultures in over hundreds and thousands of years. It is far more, though, guys, than just historical insight into a group of people and what they did and what they believed. It's so much more than just a historical document about the people of God and the children of Abraham and what happened to them. It is far more than just a few stories about this guy by the name of Jesus who was a religious leader and influential in the first generation of disciples that he had. It is far more than just that. Scripture is God's communication. It is Spirit-inspired. And the Spirit, guys, led the writing of every book that we have before us. And the whole thing hangs together because ultimately this thing has a single author. The Spirit of God, Paul says. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of of God. So when we talk about believing that this is God's communication to us and that we can trust it and that it's true in everything that it affirms, what do we mean by that? How do we flesh that out? I'm going to give you guys a couple of statements that um, evangelical churches use to describe what we mean by we believe Scripture to be true and breathed by God. One of those statements goes back to the mid-70s. It's called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, and here's part of what that statement says. I'm just going to give this to you. We won't flesh it out too much because there's a lot going on here, but I just want you to hear this. 
Holy Scripture, being God's own word, written by men, prepared and superintended by His Spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. So everything it says, everything that it, that it promises, we pull that in and we embrace it and we believe it and we obey what is written here because we believe that this is God's word to us. We believe this is good for us and we believe that this is good for every human being. So that's a great big long compound sentence statement. The assemblies of God and what we call our fundamental truths. The first of those doctrines that is listed is about the inspiration of Scripture. And this is a little bit more straightforward and easier to remember. And it says this. The Scriptures, both the Old and New Testaments, are verbally inspired of God and are the revelation of God to man, the infallible authoritative rule of faith in conduct. This book is my authoritative rule of faith, what I believe, how I hold to Jesus Christ, and conduct, what I do, how I live. The New Testament church understood this. They knew that they relied on Scripture as the foundation for what they believed, for what they proclaimed, for how they expected life to be lived now that we belong to Jesus Christ. We go back to these letters that Paul writes to this pastor Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and listen to this instruction to this young pastor about the importance of this book. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's good for everything that we need. So he goes on to tell Timothy, just be ready to preach the Word of God all the time, in season and out of season. So Scripture is intended to guide me in what I believe about God and the human condition and what salvation is. Scripture is intended to correct wrong belief and destructive behavior. Here's something that Scripture teaches a lot but that more and more, I think modern Christians tend to just not take seriously anymore. Wrong belief about who God is and what He requires from us will lead to destructive behaviors and lifestyles. Here's what Jude, the apostle, writes. Jude, in the first chapter, it's actually only one chapter long, verses 3 and 4, he says this. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for this. Why? Because certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Contend for this because there are false teachers among you who will lead people down a path of destruction and it will ruin their lives. If I can be so forward, there are people we no longer see with us on Sunday morning 
because they became enamored by false teachers on YouTube and TV who taught false things about Christ and behavior. They left their families, they left the church, and they're gone. Contend for this because not everybody on YouTube is right. That's the modern, new, revised, Phil Standard version of what Jew just said. Contend for this because lives are at stake. Lives are at stake. When Paul began this list of the armor of God, he began with the need for truth. Wrap around yourself the belt of truth. And he ends this list with our relationship with the Word of God. It's a sword. It's both defensive and offensive. The better we know it, the deeper it sinks into us. The stronger we will be and the more more able we will be to stand when our enemy works against us. We just will know that that is false. What is it that Christ does when the enemy comes and tempts him in the desert? He responds with Scripture, with Scripture, with Scripture. What you give me sounds right and feels tempting, but Scripture tells me you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. It is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So why is the Word of God spiritual warfare? Well, there's actually a lot of answers. We could talk about this for a very long time. But here's what I want to think about this morning. Why is the Word of God spiritual warfare? And here's our thought today. Our enemy wants us to believe that the Word of God is false or oppressive. Our enemy wants us to believe that the Word of God is false or oppressive. If everything that we have said this morning about the Bible is true, if we've even come close to what is true about Scripture itself, then the enemy of our souls has a profound interest in convincing us that it is full of things we cannot trust. It's full of falsehoods, it's full of mistakes, it's full of translation errors, it's full of all of that, and it is full of what are today called oppressive narratives. We can't believe this because we've moved on and this is just trouble. Our enemy has a vested interest in making sure that we believe those kinds of things about Scripture. Guys, you may or may not have noticed this, spite for the Word of God is growing because of these kinds of descriptions of Scripture to the point where we now have horrifically misguided young people burning Bibles in streets. Spite for the Word of God is growing. Now listen, the equation is simple. Falsehoods about Scripture, who God is and what Scripture teaches, plus ignorance of what the Word of God truly actually teaches, plus a lack of curiosity about what, what the Word of God teaches, leads to spite and hate and anger for the Word of God. And we need to understand a few things about some of the cultural movement in our world today. My generation, Gen X and up chronologically, by and large, that generation in our culture has at least some rootedness somewhere inside of Christian culture. When we were younger, You know, our parents or our grandparents took us to school. We went to Sunday school. At the very least, our family structure took us to church on Christmas and Easter and funerals and weddings, and there was at least some sort of touch point there. But my generation and younger statistically no longer has that. 
So when false things are said about Scripture, there's just flat-out ignorance about what Scripture actually teaches. And because the narrative about Scripture is so oppressive and so false, there's no curiosity about what Scripture actually teaches, so we start burning Bibles in streets. But listen, when someone comes to the realization that the story of the Scriptures is true, they have found salvation and freedom, and they are no longer in the grasp of the enemy. We're watching souls with demonic claws that have a death grip on those hearts and minds. Salvation sets us free. Salvation takes us out of the hands of our enemy. Friends, God really does exist. Jesus really is the Son of God among us, reconciling us to the Father. And the Holy Spirit really is God's empowering presence with us right now, guiding us through us through this life and leading us into eternity. These things really are true. The Bible does not remain the most read, the most published, the most translated, and most influential book in all of human history because it's false. I don't care what your atheist friends say on Facebook. It really doesn't matter. The Bible is all of those things. The most read, the most published, the most translated, the most influential book in human history because it is shockingly and life-transformingly true. Everything it affirms, everything it speaks to, continues to change lives, and tear down human kingdoms that oppose it. The Word of God still does that. And currently, the idea used, more often than not, to marginalize Scripture is not even necessarily that it's false. It's just that it's simply not up to date morally. It is full of oppression. But this is nothing more than just a magic trick. It's sleight of hand, and here's how this sleight of hand works. What you do is you redefine what is moral and right. You pin that redefinition to a particular political agenda, and then you say that anyone or anything that disagrees with the modern narrative is oppressive and morally backwards. It's just a redefinition sleight of hand. That's all it is. But when we take Scripture seriously, when we test its historical context and its progress, when we test the outcomes of biblical theology when it is actually implemented, we learn that human beings thrive when God's Word is applied. That's what we learn. Listen, friends, I know it's out there and sometimes it bugs us and bothers us, but the accusation that this is oppressive is just dismissive and thoughtless. It is not about investigation into the truth of the matter, and it continues to be the case that people who investigate the truth of the matter of Scripture change their minds about Scripture. It is much easier to dismiss and mock than it is to investigate and learn. C.S. Lewis put it like this in the screw tape letters. And remember, this is the advice from one demon to another about how to tempt people away from Christ. Screw tape puts it like this. Jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. 
Don't waste time trying to make him think that materialism is true. Make him think it's strong or stark, courageous, that it is the philosophy of the future, that you're on the right side of history. That's the sort of thing he cares about. The trouble about argument is that it moves the whole struggle onto the enemy's own ground. Just befuddle them with the fog of the language of oppression and you got them. Listen to what Scripture says about the wisdom that comes from the Word of God. Proverbs chapter 8, verses 34 through 36, put it like this. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. And all who hate me, the wisdom of God, love, death. Find Christ. Seek wisdom. Sit at its gates. Open its pages. Listen to the voice of the wisdom of God because here we find life. If the enemy can get any one of us to dismiss the Word of God, he can lead us down any path. He can lead us down any path because every other single path leads directly to him. There is only one way to get the sum 2 plus 2 equals right. There's an infinite number of ways to get it wrong. And so it is with salvation. There is Jesus Christ, or there is death in the enemy. But listen, guys, we know this. There is a solution to this kind of life-destroying deception. And I want to finish by reading this passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's what Paul says, and I think this helps pull all of this together for us this morning. So I want us to hear with a sword of the Spirit the Word of God says about this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. And behold, the new has come. All that is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us now the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the truth of the Word of God. This is our hope. This is the hope of our salvation. Let's pray.